We're going to be looking at a selection of verses this morning, so if you've got your Bibles there, we'll, we'll be turning uh, through some of the passages we read and a few more. But have you ever said, I'm just not able for it? Perhaps it's something trivial like a huge meal, and you look at it, and you think back to younger days when you were well able for it, but now I'm just not able for that anymore. Or perhaps it's a hike, uh, and you think, I'm not able for that. Or perhaps it's some task that you're faced with, and I'm just not able. Or perhaps it's temptation, and you think, I'm not able. I can't do it. Or some trial that God has set before you and is calling you to go through, and you think, no, I just can't face it. I'm not able for it. Or maybe it might even be the whole concept of the Christian life. And you just think to yourself, maybe at this moment, it's too hard. I can't do it. I'm not able. It can seem like a really dark place and a really hard place to be. But actually, it's much safer than the opposite place. The opposite place is, oh yes, I'm able for that. I can do that. That's easy. I'm capable. Remember the time in Jesus' life and ministry here amongst the disciples when he said to James and John, they, they asked for special positions of honor. And they, he said to them, Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? And in your head you're thinking, Boys, don't say it. Don't say it. Whatever you say, don't say it. And what do they say? Oh yes, we are able no, no, don't say it. And yet how often do we say it in our lives? It's not helpful. It's a dangerous place to be. But perhaps this morning you're more convinced of the opposite. I can't do it. I'm not able. And into this comes a phrase repeated over and over again in the New Testament. I think seven times in total. One writer who whose sermon I was reading uh, this week, a sermon that was him brought these verses to my attention, a man called James Stewart. Um, He says, The constant watchword of the New Testament is not, we are able. What you do find over and over again is, he is able. He is able. A thousand difficulties may lie across the path. He is able to bring us through. Hot, passionate temptations may threaten wreck and ruin. He is able to give us victory. The whole world may seem to be going to the devil, the human race careering towards destruction. He is able to bring it to God. All the way through, there keeps breaking out the rallying trumpet note. He is able. Read that, I thought, superb. I want to preach in these verses. We had a while ago a series of sermons on that little phrase, but God or but the Lord, and we saw how transformative it was. And I started to think about preaching a series of sermons in this little phrase, He is able. And as I thought about it, I thought, no, actually, the cumulative force of having all of them, or many of them together, is much richer 
And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And let me give you another quote from James Stewart. Uh, Not the actor, uh, a preacher in Scotland. Um, Beyond our futile striving shines his sufficiency. And beyond our perplexities lies his peace. He is able. Is that what you need reminded of this morning? Let's take a number of these. First of all, he is able to supply. He is able to supply. Perhaps you've been facing trials or temptation and you feel under such pressure that you you feel, "I, I can't do anything but give in. Or perhaps you're under a trial, a testing time, and you think, I just can't go on anymore. It's too much. You feel as if you're caught in a storm out at sea, and you've got no life raft, no life belt, and you think, I just can't keep my head above water anymore. Perhaps it's the breakers of temptation crashing in upon you. Look at Hebrews 2, verse Uh, 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 17 has told us that he's been made like his brothers and sisters in every way. Later on in Hebrews we're told, in every way but yet without sin. And he's made like us in every way. And he's tempted in every way so that he might be, verse 17, a merciful and faithful high priest. A high priest was not just to offer up sacrifices, but he was to ask God to provide for the people what he knew the people needed. And if you cast your eye across to chapter 4, verse 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavenlies, Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like to be caught in the vice of temptation. He knows what it is in a way far more intense than you or I will ever face to have Satan honing in on him, to have Satan's sights solely targeted on him. If Satan could wreck Christ and tempt him to sin even once, the whole rescue mission would have been ruined. And Satan comes gunning for him time and time again in the wilderness, beginning of his ministry, in Gethsemane. Towards the end of his ministry, on the cross, he's being tempted all the time. We read here, he himself suffered. He suffered. He suffered and yet he was sinless. Yet he was tempted in every way. And the focus here isn't so much in his sinlessness, but on the fact that being tempted in every way and tested and pushed and battered in every way, He is able to help. You know, perhaps you have an illness and you go to a doctor and the doctor says to you, 
It's funny you should come to me, of all doctors, for I had that illness myself. And here's how I treated myself, and here's what you need to do. And whenever you hear that, you think, oh, relief. This man actually knows what he's talking about. It's not just theory. It's not just that he's helped somebody else. He himself has suffered, and he is able to help. He's able to supply. He knows what he's doing. He's been there. And so this passage assures us, the King James has a lovely word. He is able to succor, to succor, to, to, to provide sustenance. The Greek word is, is even more lovely. It's made up of two words, a cry and to run. A cry, run. You know, parents know that, don't you? you hear, there's lots of children making noise. And then you hear that particular frequency of sound that only emanates from your child's vocal cords and you single it out from all the other cacophony of, of sound and you hear it and your ears and you run, a cry to run. That's what this Greek word is. And he comes. He's able to, to cry, run, to, to, to run to the cry, to provide help. That was how they thought of help. There's a cry, run and do something about it. And our Saviour is able. He hears your cry and he runs. He sees your distress and temptation and he gets it. He knows what it's like to be under immense trial and pressure and strain. And he's able to come to your aid. And he brings with him not just his divine power, but his whole human experience of knowing what is best, knowing what you need in that moment, knowing what it's like. James Stewart has a lovely little phrase. He says, You need never be afraid that Christ will not understand nor enter intimately into your problem or struggle. Some people may not. In other words, some people just don't get it. Some people may not. Christ always will. He is able. He is able. And in particular, these Hebrew believers that the writer is writing to were tempted to give up. The pressure they felt was too great. And the writer assures them, look, Jesus, your Savior, knows the pressure. And he is able to help to supply you. That's our first point. He is able to supply. He is able to supply. Second, Second, but perhaps you think the pressure is too great. It's inevitable that I'm going to sin, I'm going to fall, or I'm going to stumble. I'm going to stumble into doubt. I'm going to stumble into disbelief. I'm going to have all these questions that that assail me. And and I'm just going to give up. I'm not strong enough to keep going. Or maybe you've fallen into sin. And it's the same old sin. You, You you, you beat it for a while and you think of trying and then it's back again. And, and your Christian life looks like a, a yo-yo up and down and in and out of this sin. Have you been there? You think, I'm just, this is, is this as good as it gets? And Satan's whispering in your ear, you'll never beat it. You'll never beat it. You're, you're just going to keep falling and stumbling. That's just the way it's going to be. And then you give in. Turn to Jude, the end of our Bibles, bar one book. Um, 
book of Jude, just before Revelation. And Jude has got one chapter. And go right to the end of that chapter and look at verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Without fault and with great joy. He is able to present you. Or he's able to keep you from falling. We're only going to think about that bit. Jude is writing a stern letter of warning. As you cast your eye back across it, you'll see that he's warning them about false teachers who are sneaking in amongst them. He's warning them about immorality that uh, is taking, uh, taking these false teachers that they are promoting amongst the believers. Verse 8. These dreamers pollute their own bodies, rejecting authority and slandering celestial beings. Uh, verse uh, four, they are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And, and he writes the, this, these formidable warnings. And he warns them of destruction. He warns them of the danger of being a fake Christian, a counterfeit believer, of being a fruitless Christian. And then he calls them in a series of commands, verses 20 uh, to 23. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. Be merciful. Snatch others from the fire. Save them. To others show mercy uh, mixed with fear. Command, 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 command. And you can imagine some of these believers fearful at the predicament that they're in. Afraid too that they might fall into it. Thinking, I'll stumble. I'll fall. Perhaps it seemed too hard. And then Jude comes out with this majestic sentence. He's told them to keep yourselves in God's love. Think, oh, what a nice thought, but it's too hard. It's too hard. And then Jude says, it's more than you keeping yourself. Where do you hear this? To him who is able to keep you. To him who is able to keep you. And not just to keep you, but to keep you from falling. Satan comes to you and says, it's inevitable. You can't beat this. This is who you are. And Jude says, no it's not. He is able to keep you from falling. Do you find yourself falling into discouragement at the same old sins? Yes, we need to fight. Yes, we need uh, to work. Yes, we need to grow. But failure is not inevitable. He is able. We need to fix our eyes on him and not ourselves. Do you think I can't keep going? He is able to keep you from stumbling, able to keep you from falling. If the first one is he is able to supply, the second heading is he is able to sustain. He is able to sustain little batteries in the Duracell bunny. Just keeps on going. Your Savior is able to keep you going through illness, stress, pressure, temptation. He is able to sustain. We've got to keep moving. Perhaps you look at the world around you and you look at the news uh, and you, you, you hear of all that's going on and you think, this is, this is incredible, this is... This is just 
What is going on in this crazy world? Could it get any worse? It seems to be uh, careening out of control. Like a car whose brakes have failed and it's on a, on a hairpin twisting mountain road. And the cliffs are looming. Think, what is happening in this world? Perhaps it's not just the news, but perhaps you're looking at life around you and you're thinking about family and friends. How will they ever come to know Christ? They're going further away, despite whatever I'm doing and what I'm trying. They're not coming any closer. The government pursues a new agenda. People proclaim new genders. There's greed. There's corruption. There's so many blatant lies being told by politicians that It's hard to keep track of them. And you could just think, I'll bury my head and give up. What's the point? The world rises against Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Back um, Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians and Philippians. Now, the NIV doesn't quite translate it. He is able But it's the same Greek words that are there. Um, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21. It's on page 1180. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control... The power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Paul's going to go on and say, he's able to give us new bodies. We'll transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. But that he is able to transform everything. He is able to subdue everything. He is able to bring everything under his control. The world rises against Christ. The Christian gets discouraged. Paul says, the King James has it this way, He is able to subdue all things. He is able to subdue all things. Christ commands us to preach. It seems futile. He is able to subdue all nations. You're seeking uh, to share the gospel with somebody, maybe uh, just a conversation or maybe a Christianity Explored course and it seems as if it's going nowhere, it's futile. And you think, I don't have the words for this. He is able to subdue. You're praying for family members and they're not coming closer to Christ. They're moving further away. And you might be inclined to give up. Hear what Paul says. He is able to subdue all things. Whenever Martin Luther was summoned to to Augsburg to appear before the the church, Uh, The German princes said to him, At Augsburg are the powers of hell. Luther said, At Augsburg, Jesus reigns. He's able to subdue all things. Some of us um, were at the conference and we heard Alana Carson uh, telling her story of being kidnapped in Nigeria. We actually watched it here a few months ago uh, as well. Uh, Incredible story. Kidnapped uh, by brutal uh, men in Nigeria. And yet, she and the other female were not abused. He's able to subdue all things. British government doesn't pay ransoms. A Muslim government 
paid the ransom for two Christi three Christians to be set free. He is able to subdue all things. Paul facing the Roman Empire and all its pagan atheism and its pantheon of gods. The disciples, this motley crew of flawed and failing men with, with no great education as it were amongst them take on the great intellects of the ancient world. He is able to subdue all things. Do you need, need reminded of that this morning? He is able to subdue, to sustain and to supply. Fourthly, fourthly. I was talking to a friend of mine and her father is elderly and very ill. And he's a godly man, but such is the pain and illness that he has that he's in a complete mental fog and couldn't even remember the truths that he had proclaimed for many years that would bring him comfort. He said to her, I don't know what's true and real anymore. And she said to him, Jesus is true. And it was like a knife cutting through the fog and his face lit up and he said, yes, that's right, Jesus is true. And she was so thankful for that moment of clarity that he had and then clarity, more clarity did, did come as they were able to get the medication right and, and so on. But as we talked, one of the things we were talking about was the reality is that although her father had lost his grasp of the grip that God had of him, at no moment did his father lose the grip that he had of him. The reality is that life has its limits and we've been reminded of that uh, this week as we've been praying for, for Maisie. Turn with me to what we read from 1 Timothy. Or 2 Timothy rather. 2 Timothy and chapter 1. 2 Timothy and chapter 1. Page 11. 80 something I think. 1195. Um, and here's Paul. Paul is in prison. He's nearing the end of his life. If you cast your eye down to verse 15, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. If you turn over to chapter 4, verse 10, he's lamenting that uh, Demas has loved the world and deserted him. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. The, the last two men are probably sent on missionary work. And he says, only Luke is with me. He's feeling alone. He's feeling deserted. Look at verse eleven of, or sorry, 14 of chapter 4. Alexander, the metal worker, did me great harm. And yet, as he writes to Timothy, it's not a bitter, angry rant. Verse 12 of chapter 1. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet, I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. He is able 
to secure. To secure. He is able to secure. Paul had deposited his life. The word that's used for entrusted is is the word that was used to deposit money somewhere. To put it somewhere safe. And you know in the ancient world they didn't have banks. And so you would deposit your goods with a neighbor if you were going away traveling. You would deposit them, perhaps even you would bury them in a, in a field. And uh, you would leave them somewhere, but you, you didn't know if they were safe. Was your neighbor able to guard them and keep them secure for the day when you would return? Well, Paul says, I've banked my life with Jesus. I've entrusted it to him. I've deposited my eternity with him that he will guard it for that day when he comes back and makes everything new. And as death comes closer, you know, it's easy for young Christians or Christians who aren't ill to have a confidence about heaven. But whenever the end is closing in, it seems awfully real. And we can fear and we can wonder, and we can wonder for our loved ones, and we can be anxious. Well, listen to Paul at the end of his days. He says here, He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Death is coming. But Paul knows, look back to verse uh, 10. Paul knows the one who has destroyed death. You know, the problem with entrusting your stuff to your neighbor was that a bigger enemy might come and your neighbor wouldn't be able to guard it. Well, death is coming for you and for me. And we have trusted our lives to someone. Is he able to guard them? Well, yes, already we've seen him not just beat death and sort of struggle through it, but destroy it, to smash it and to obliterate it completely. And he is able to secure, to guard to watch over, to to hold on to us forever and ever and ever. I remember visiting my great uncle in hospital as he was coming to the end of his days and the the nurse would come in and say, "Uh, Mr. Lockridge, please put on the the oxygen mask and he would put it on and then uh, she would go out and he would take it off and he would say, Mark, I just want to go home. And he didn't mean to Port Stewart, he just wanted home to heaven. And that confidence is possible because of Christ. And it's possible because Christ is able to secure. Let me give you some other dying words of Christians. Adoniram Judson, a famous missionary in the, 1900, or the 1800s. I go with the gladness of a boy. I feel strong in Christ. Or John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Weep not for me. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who through the mediation of his blessed Son receives me, though a sinner. Complete confidence. We shall meet to sing the new song and to remain everlastingly happy. Glorious confidence. Because he is able to secure. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, as he was dying, his secretary was writing uh, letters for him and Owen would read that, read that to me now what you've said and the secretary read a little paragraph that started with I am still in the land of the living and John Owen said no, no, no don't write that write this I am yet in the land of the dying but later 
I will be in the land of the living. He is able to secure. Covenanter. James Guthrie was being led out to be executed. His, his friend uh, was, was weeping that this day would come. And Guthrie said to him, Do not weep. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He is able to secure. He is able to guard what you've entrusted to him. Hang on to that truth for yourselves and for your loved ones in Christ. Our time's gone. Let me finish with two more. He is able to save. You're in Second Timothy. Turn over a few pages again into Hebrews. This time on into Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 and verse uh, 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is able to save completely, or the footnote says forever. The King James has to the uttermost. It's a great phrase. It doesn't say from the uttermost. It says to the uttermost. And the idea in the word is, is God is able to save both completely and forever. No one English word seems to grasp them both. It's about duration and it's about completeness. You might wonder, is God really able to save me? At the, the conference down in Waterford, a man was there on the Sunday evening who sort of stumbled into our gathering and I was talking to him. Uh, and he said, is God able to save me? I want to ask you a question. Answer me this, he said. Is God able to save me? And I said, yes, my friend, he is able to save you. And he said, no, I don't think he is. And I said, no, I can assure you that he said, you don't know what I've done. I said, no, but I know what God has done. He is able to save. Maybe here this, you're here this morning and you haven't yet come to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Well, this verse assures you that you need to be saved and that he is able to save you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And this salvation lasts for the longest time, for eternity, and it is utterly complete. There is no part of your life that will not be made new and clean and pure and perfect. There is no part of you that will be undefeated uh, by, by Christ, that will be left as a victory, a trophy of sin or, or failure. Christ will triumph and make everything new. He is able to save to the uttermost. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what sins you've committed. He is able to save completely. It doesn't matter your record. I heard this week of a, a young person who has been involved in, in procuring abortions for his girlfriends over the years and has now realized the, the horror of what he did and is destroyed by guilt. And oh, that I could speak to that young person and say to him, he is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely. He is able to save, doesn't matter what you've done. And you have this high priest who will pray for you and intercede for you and will not stop 
interceding for you all the days of your life and all the days of eternity. He is able to save to the uttermost. Do you need to remember that when doubts come? You think, what am I doing? What am I kidding? How could God forgive me? He is able to save. He is able to save. And then sixthly, turn way back to Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. James Stewart, in his sermon, described this one as one thing remains and this perhaps the loveliest of them all. One thing remains and this perhaps the loveliest of them all. Look at Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He is able to surprise. He is able to do more than you can ask or imagine. Immeasurably more or far more abundantly more as it's translated in other places. He is able to surprise. Is this not the loveliest of them all? Paul tells them that he's been praying for them. And he's pray- I mean, the prayer that he prays is so rich and glorious. And then he says, that's not even a fraction of what God can do. Think of this life. And we look at our lives. And we, we, we look at them. And we think, well, this has happened and that's happened to me. Paul is assuring us here that there will come a time when we will look at our lives and we will say, he's done not just what I asked, He's gone beyond what I asked. He's he's surprised me because what he's done is even more than I could have asked or even imagined. Not in my wildest dreams could I have thought that he would have done this with my puny little life and all my flaws and all my sins and everything that's wrong with me. Look what he's done through me and in me. He is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. We look at our lives and Uh, We think that we're nobodies. And and we are, as the world sees us. And in terms of comparing ourselves with God, we are less than nothing. But what God does with us will surprise us and delight us for all eternity. You look at the things that you've been praying for. Paul says, he'll surprise you. He'll either surprise you by answering them, and then some. Or you might be disappointed he didn't answer them. But then you'll see what he's done by giving them a different answer. And you'll go, that's way beyond. That's even better. He is able to surprise. Able to do far more, immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. Do you marvel at the thought of heaven? And the new heavens and the new earth and how glorious they'll be. Do you marvel at the thought of being made new? Do you marvel at the thought of meeting God? It's going to be far more abundant than you have even imagined. Immeasurably more than you can God will both surpass and surprise. He will surpass everything that we've thought and he will surprise us in every way. 
We know that we will be made new. We know that there will be rest. We know that his servants will serve him. We know that the creation will be made new. We know that there will be no more sin. We know that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We know that the dwelling of God will be with man. He will be amongst us. And we'll get to walk with him and talk with him and to know him. We know that we'll get to know the angels and we'll get to know the great heroes and saints of the past. And the ordinary heroes and saints of the past will amaze us as we find out their stories. And we know that there'll be answers to questions that we've got. And we know that we'll find out bits and parts of reasons of why this happened and that happened. And maybe the whole story will be ours as well. We know those things, but it'll be more than we have ever imagined. Far more than we have ever imagined. He is able to surprise, not just in the future, but also in this life. He will surpass and surprise your expectations. Does that not encourage you to keep trusting and to keep going? We are caterpillars. I've used this illustration. We are caterpillars who have heard a whisper of a rumor that we turn into butterflies. And we're trying to think, what will it be like to fly? And we're told here, it'll be better than we've ever imagined. We're trying to think, what will it be like to be beautiful and not stumpy and hairy? That's what caterpillars are. Imagine them trying to to, to, to get their heads round. And a butterfly says, look, it'll be more than you can ever, ever imagine. Far more abundantly wonderful than you can ever imagine. That's only a millionth part. He is able to surprise. I have one thing to say in closing. Perhaps there's been a nagging doubt in your mind all along. Mark, he is able, but is he willing? That doesn't actually tell us that he's going to do it. Well, it does with God. Because for God to be able to do something is also to do it. For his people... If it's good, he will do it. And he will only ever do what's good for his people. And so his ability is his doing. Theologians have a phrase that says, there's no passive potency in God. In other words, there's no power that's left unused. You know, sometimes you see an athlete and they've got some left in the tank uh, for the final and they've got extra energy to go. Well, God doesn't leave anything in the tank. It's not that he's got all this ability and he's, he's just, it's there and it's not really being used. He is working all things for the good of his people. We might say, well, why doesn't he do that? If he's able, why doesn't he do this? It seems as if he's not doing it. He mustn't be willing to do it. But no, the reason isn't a lack of power or a lack of will. It's because it would not be the best for us or for you, for me, for him to do it. He will only ever do what's ultimately for your best and his glory He will only ever do it, and he will do it. He is able, and he is willing. Because they're the same thing. Because he's that sort of a God. So, take this phrase, and let it be what James Stewart said uh, at the start. He said, Beyond our futile striving lies his sufficiency. He is able, and beyond our perplexities lies his peace. He is able.
If you're able, if you're able, let's stand as we come to him in prayer. Oh Lord God, what a stunning little phrase. It sits beside our complete weakness. We're not able, but our God is able. And our God is not simply able at a distance, but our God indwells us by his Holy Spirit and enables us. We thank you that you're able to supply for us in trial and in temptation. Thank you that you're able to sustain us and keep us from falling. Thank you that you're able to subdue all your and our enemies. Thank you that you're able uh, to secure us for that great day. Thank you that you're able to save to the uttermost. Thank you that you are able and willing to surpass and surprise anything that we could ask or imagine. Thank you. Help us to remember it. Lord God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.